If you have a Bible, if you want to go back to James chapter 1, I'll go before the Lord with the word of prayer. And Father, we thank you for being here with us today and for your presence being here. And I ask, Lord, you'll open your word up to us, Lord, and, and illuminate it to our minds and our understanding. And, and especially, Lord, this message on temptation that you'll help us to see clearly, Lord, what we need to see that we can apply it to our lives because this will be very helpful to us. I ask that you'll do that for all of us here. And uh, help me to teach clearly for all of us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, so we're going to read in James chapter 1, and we'll begin in verse 12 today. And James writes, Blessed is the man that endures trial or temptation, for when he is tried, he shall receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to them that love him. And then he says, Let no man say when he is tempted, I am tempted of God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, neither tempts he any man. For every man is tempted when he is drawn away of his own lust and enticed. Then when lust has conceived, it brings forth sin, and sin, when it's finished or becomes full grown, brings forth death. And he says, Do not err, do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. For every good gift and every perfect gift is from above and cometh down from the Father of lights with whom is no variableness, neither shadow of turning. And of his own will begat he us with the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. So I've said several times that James wrote this letter. He's writing to the scattered Jewish Christian brethren, I believe, from Jerusalem to encourage them, and what he wants to encourage them is to maintain a deep, sincere, consistent, faithful walk with God. That is the purpose of this letter, that they can have a living faith, not just a head faith. And the first way we've talked about, he encourages them to do this, is that they need to see the goal or the end in all the various and many trials that they're going to encounter or experience. And through that, what he's saying is, and we need to remember this, And it seems like you teach on trials and then you hear about a lot of people going through them, so it should be helpful. But when we're going through trials, the temptation is to be like, I just went out of this. I hate this. Why is this happening to me? But what we're saying is James said that we shouldn't despise or despair or detest trials, but rather he says we should count them all joy. Pure joy. And that sounds crazy, doesn't it? But the reason he's saying that is not because they make us feel happy or good, but it's because they're going to produce in us endurance or an ability to face any storm that comes our way without wavering. We'll be able to stand up to the storms alive to come our way in difficult and trying times. When we stand up and endure, then God does a maturing work in us. We come out of that, out of that trial, as hard as it was, and sometimes it felt like we're just barely holding on, but we come out of that being seasoned, experienced soldiers in his army. So without that, all you are, you just end up being a raw recruit. And you could be a raw recruit in boot camp and have been a Christian 30 years if you don't pass any of your trials. But he wants us to be competent, mature saints filled with an expectation of God's faithfulness and his greatness to us. That's what he wants. And so that's why we have things like in Daniel 11, the people who know their God shall be strong and carry out great exploits. That's what will happen when you walk with God and go through trials. The second way he encourages us, James gives, is that the man that endures trials is a blessed man, and he has the favor of God resting on him. Look down in verse 12. Let's read and look at that again. He said, blessed, and that's when he's talking about his favor is on the man that endures trial. For when he is tried, he'll receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to them that love him. And a great illustration of that is Joseph. So, you know, Joseph endured being thrown down in that prison. It was a trial he was going through, hadn't done anything wrong. But the thing is, he was blessed in his trial, wasn't he? I mean, God's favor was on him. Listen to this. You don't have to turn to it, but Genesis 39, 20, it says this as he's down in that prison, going through a trial, not complaining. It says, Joseph's master took him and put him into the prison, but 
the Lord was with Joseph and showed him mercy and gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. And the keeper of the prison committed to Joseph's hand all the prisoners that were in the prison and whatsoever they did there, he was the doer of it. The keeper of the prison looked not to anything that was under his hand because the Lord was with him and that which he did, the Lord made it to prosper. So you don't read anywhere in there where Joseph moaned or complained or pouted. He did what? He considered it all joy, didn't he? He did. I guarantee you he did. And the blessing of God rested on him. He loved the Lord through all those circumstances and proved his love, didn't he? And that's the question that we have to ask ourselves: Is our love for God genuine? Because we said True love for the Lord Jesus Christ will endure trials, no matter how hard they get. But false love will do what? It will only abide with the Lord as long as it pays. And Paul wrote this to the Ephesian church. This is something to think about. He says, grace be with all them that love our Lord Jesus Christ in sincerity, or it could be translated, or with an undying love. Because the grace, the blessing, the mercy of God will abide on any of us or all of us if we will just be faithful to him in trials. We'll we'll experience that just like Joseph did. We can know the blessing and the hand of the Lord on us. He's holding those two twin goals up before us. Maturity, that God's going to make us mature and complete Christians, and the crown of life. Those are our incentives that he's holding in front of us for enduring trials. And our love for the Lord Jesus Christ, we're saying, is the only thing we're reading there in verse 12 that will cause us to press in for those goals. Otherwise, you'll give up somewhere along the line. So we really do need to love him. First Peter, it says the same thing. Through these first 12 verses we've been looking at, especially verses 2 to 12, James has been talking about what? Trials and the many tests that God's going to put us through. And what we need to remember in all that with these trials and these tests is that God is a workman that loves us and he takes pride in his work. The work he's doing in us, he takes pride in that. And we need to also remember and think about this, that God is a skilled workman. He's a master craftsman. And what's he doing? What's he crafting? Holy, righteous, faithful children. That's what we need to remember. Well, the reason I'm saying that is because when you get in a trial, it seems to point to that God's abandoned you, doesn't it? That's what you are tempted to think. But James is saying what? He's saying he would never abandon you, that he is a good workman. That's the whole point. And so we know this verse, he who has begun a good work in you will do what? Abandon it? It says he'll perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. And, you know, we sing this song. We don't always sing the verses. That song we sing, he that will begin a good work in you. Well, the verse is really good. It's biblical. And it goes like this. If the struggle you're facing, you all know this, is slowly replacing your hope with despair, and that can happen, or the process is long and you're losing your song in the night, You can be sure that the Lord has his hand on you, safe and secure. He will never abandon you because you are his treasure and he finds his pleasure in you. And we need to remember those words are so true. So those trials are only designed for our good. And we just need to look at them that way, don't we? Designed to finish that work in us. But as we come here in verse 13, James kind of shifts gears on what he's talking about. So he uses the same word. It's the same Greek word that he's been using for trials. But here in verse 13, he begins to talk about temptations. So the same word is used and it'll be translated temptation or trial. Well, King James has a temptation just all the way down through there. Most versions have changed it to trials. But the same word can either mean a trial or a temptation. And the only way you can tell which it should be is by the context it's used in. The reason for that is why the same word is used is because trials and temptations are closely related and connected. And here's what I'm saying. The testing that God meant for us, for our good, can become an occasion for sin. And thus a trial becomes a temptation. They're not the same, though. 
Trials and temptations are not the same. A trial can turn into a temptation. Sometimes a temptation, in a sense, can be a trial, but they're not the same. So what's the difference? So we're saying God tests us. He brings trials. He doesn't bring temptations. The goal of God's testing or trials is what? We read it here. That you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. That's what a trial from God's side is designed to do. So a trial is meant for our good. No evil in it at all. The goal of temptation is evil, though. It's an enticement to sin. And the end result of that is death. And that's not coming from the Lord. Maybe this will help clear it up. So we see that in the case of Job. So Satan came to God, and what was his motive or incentive? What did he want to do? He wanted to tempt Job to curse God. Would that be a good thing? No, that would be an evil thing. And the temptation came from who? Who was the temptation coming from in that case? Satan. But God allowed the devil to test Job why? So Job would fail? So Job would fall away? So Job would be crushed? No. He wanted to prove his integrity. And he wanted to produce in Job a proven character. He also needed to work something out in him. But that's what that was all about. So their motives and the end results that the devil was seeking through the temptation and God was trying to do with Job in the trial were radically different, weren't they? Radically different. And the outcomes were intended to be different. Because the devil, his whole goal with what he was doing was to get Job to curse God. God's whole goal was not that, was it? Because that would be God trying to incite sin. He doesn't do that ever. Never does that. His thing was, he said, Job will maintain his character. He will maintain his faith. I will prove him and mature him through this and do a work in him. That was God's whole purpose. In that sense, it was a trial. But they were both one and the same. What he experienced. So whether a trial becomes a temptation to sin and we fall into sin, it all depends on us. How we react to the trials that come our way. Because every difficulty we face requires a decision, doesn't it? So if we respond in obedience to God and remain faithful to his word, then what's going to happen to us? We are going to grow and mature spiritually, aren't we? We respond in the right way. But if we respond with disobedience, then that trial becomes a temptation and that leads to sin. You know, another illustration in this is Demas and Paul, they faced the same trial. And what was that trial? The trial was great persecution. They both faced the same trial. For Paul, it proved that his faith was genuine and did a work in him. Because he was able to say at the end of his life, I have fought a good fight. I've finished my course. I've kept the faith. And henceforth, at the end of all this great persecution, he said, there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, shall give me at that day. And not to me only, but to all of us in here that love his appearing. And so for Paul, that trial was a blessing, wasn't it? I mean, it was, believe it or not. It did a work in him. It was a blessing. But the same trial for Demas ended up being a temptation. Because it says this about him, for Demas has forsaken me, Paul wrote, having loved this present world and has departed unto Thessalonica. So the same trial that Paul faced became a temptation for Demas that led to sin. And where was the problem there? It's with his heart, wasn't it? It wasn't the trial. And God wasn't trying to destroy him. He wasn't trying to get Demas to go back to Thessalonica. That wasn't the purpose, was it? That's the way it worked out. So what I want to look at three things today. And the first thing I want to look at here is who is the source of temptation? Who's the source of temptation? Because we've said if God allows trials... And we do know that God is in control of all things, including the trial. Doesn't that make him the source of temptation, you might ask? Aren't my circumstances sometimes the source of temptation? Or some people like, you know, God made me the way I am, didn't he? It's not my fault that I'm like my dad. And a lot of people want to blame that for the source of temptation. But listen, James has got an answer to those kinds of accusations. So look in verse 13. 
he says, let no man say when he is tempted, I'm tempted of God, for God cannot be tempted with evil and neither tempts any man with evil. So the way that's worded in the Greek, it's emphatic that no one, he's saying, let no one, not a single one, not a single person say, God made me do it. That's what he's trying to say there. Because James knows something. He knows that human nature is always trying to blame somebody else for their failures and sins. That's just the way it is. And it's as old as the garden. Because in Genesis 3, when God called out to Adam after they ate of that fruit, Adam, where art thou? Adam answered him and said, I heard thy voice in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. So here we have sinful man is afraid of an infinitely holy God. He'd never done that before. God would be like, what are you doing? You never did that before. What's going on here? The Lord answered him. He said to Adam, he said, well, who told you that you're naked? Who told you that? He said, did you eat of the tree whereof I commanded thee that thou shouldest not eat? And the Lord knew that. He's given Adam a chance to fess up. Well, let me ask you something. Did Adam take responsibility for what he did? Did he own up to the crime he had committed? He didn't own up to that any more than your children do. When you catch them doing something, did you? Oh, no, I didn't. Or it's he did. Or it's always something other than them. You tell me when your children are like, oh, yeah, I did it. I'm, I'm sorry. I, I didn't mean to do that. I'll never do it again. I mean, sometimes that happens, doesn't it? You got good kids and trained kids. But generally, they're going to deny it, aren't they? And here was Adam's answer. What was his answer? Listen, tell me if this was his answer. The woman gave me of the tree that I did eat. Was that his answer? The woman gave me of the tree that I did eat. Don't shake your head yes. I'm not setting you up, but that's not what he said. So that was true. That was true, and it still would have been a cop-out because who's he blaming? He's blaming his wife. But here's what he really said, and this is why James was writing what he writes. This is what he really said in Genesis 3, 12. Not the woman gave me of the tree. He said, the woman whom thou gavest to be with me. She gave me of the tree and I did eat. And so Adam's like, I'm going to tell you who's to blame. It was you, God, because you gave me that woman. He's like, I went to sleep and woke up and there she was. And he's like, I didn't even have any say so in the matter. You know, you picked her, you made her, and I'm stuck with her, you know. And, and you know, he'd be like, well, why did you make a woman like that? Couldn't you have made her some other way, you know? Isn't that what he's saying? And that he is. And that's human nature. And that's why James, you're thinking, oh, I'd never do that. Oh, yeah, we all do that to some degree. We want to blame God for our situation, our trial, and why does it have to be this way? We do that. Listen, Eve was just as bad as Adam, though. So he blamed the Lord. And what did she say when he asked her, you know, what is this that you have done? Did she admit she missed it too? Women, did she admit? No, she didn't admit it. Who did she say? It's the snake that you made implied, right? So it's all going back on God. And none of them are going to fess up and take the blame because it's the DNA in man to blame God for all the problems and all our lot in life, so to speak. So listen to this. Proverbs 19.3 says, a person's own folly leads to their ruin. It's their own folly that leads to their ruin, yet their heart rages against the Lord. He's not responsible for the problems people have, or he's not responsible for the condition of the earth right now, is he? He's not at all. It's our own folly. It's our own sin. All of mankind, we're all guilty. And yet it says, yet they rage against the Lord. They blame him. And he is, we'll see, he has no blame to take. Most people aren't so bold to blame God directly. Instead, they'll blame their background, their families, their circumstances, their economic conditions. But listen to what James says in verse 13. Let no man say when he is tempted, I am tempted of God. Now, I've gone into prison on many Sundays in the past, and I've had countless prisoners that will tell me and they act like they're not going to do a thing about it. They are slaves to lust. Their excuse is, I can't help it that God made me this way. If he didn't want me to be this, why did he put these desires inside of me? That's what they'll say. Why did he create me that way? Well, there's this poet, Robert Burns, a Scottish poet that these commentators love to quote. And I do think the quote is good because this describes how sinful man looks at the Lord. 
Here it is. Thou knowest thou hast formed me. He's speaking to God. Thou knowest thou hast formed me with passions wild and strong. And listening to their witching voice has often led me wrong. So what's he saying? He's saying, you've made me with all these wild passions and you put them in me. And I I listened to them and it's led me down the wrong way. He's blaming God. That's what that is. And that's what people do a lot. That's what a lot of people think. God created me this way, or he put me in these circumstances, and therefore I can't help myself. But here, James gives us here two reasons why God cannot be the source of temptation. And look what he says in verse 13. He says, for God cannot be, first of all, cannot be tempted with evil. And what does that mean? That means that God is so infinitely perfect in goodness and holiness, that it is impossible, literally it is impossible for him to be tempted of evil. He is repulsed by evil. It's even more than that. It says this, you are of purer eyes than to behold evil and cannot look on wickedness. God hates evil. He's pure, holy light. In him is no darkness at all. There is no room for him to be tempted in any sense of evil itself. It's impossible. And because of that, we have what's at the end of verse 13. It says, for God can't be tempted with evil. And because of that, neither tempteth he any man. So he's so good of holiness, so perfect in goodness and holiness. You've got to listen to this. He would never, ever, ever, ever dream of enticing scheming, tempting, or drawing his children into sin. God would never do that. That's what he's saying. He would never tempt anybody. And I'm saying, for me, that's an encouragement. It really is. God may test us. And so you read Genesis 22, 1, it says he tested Abraham. But he doesn't do that like we said. He didn't do it with Job. He didn't do it with Abraham. He doesn't do it for his children to destroy their faith, but rather, what was he doing with Abraham? He was strengthening his faith. So here's what we need to remember. What this is saying is he's not devious. I mean, I used to have to sometimes battle with that. I'm thinking, well, man, what if I'm not one of the elect? He's making me think I'm one of the elect. I think I'm saved. I believe I'm walking with the Lord. But in the end, he's going to say, I was just toying with you. You were never saved. Anybody ever had those thoughts? I've had those thoughts. I used to have to really battle with that. Like, man, in the end, I'm just going to end up being a fool. I want to serve the Lord, but he's going to tell me, too bad, you weren't one of my elect. God doesn't do that. He's never doing things to us to try to trip us up. So his goodness, listen, his goodness, we've talked about this quite a bit. It's a guarantee to us that God Almighty will never seek our hurt. It's the nature of God. So he is never, James is saying, he's never the source of temptation. He's never the source of something that's trying to lead you into sin. God never does that to his children. We don't have to worry about that, do we? So you get into trial, you can't say, well, God's doing this to me because he's trying to destroy me. Never. Never is his goal. So who is the source of temptation? Who is the true source of temptation? It's right here in verse 14. But every man is tempted when he's drawn away of his own lust and enticed. The blame lies within ourselves. So James says, don't blame God. James doesn't get into this, does he? He can't even do the old Flip Wilson. The devil made me do it. You can't say that, James is saying. Now, he knows the devil's powerful and is involved in temptation. But he's saying the true source of temptation is where? It's us, right inside of you and me. Look what it says there in verse 14. When he is drawn away of his own lust, of his own lust. So it's the uncrucified evil desires in men. That is the combustible material that produces temptation and sin. The uncrucified sinful desires. So I'm not saying it has to be that way, but that's what causes it. It's in you. Is the point. You can't blame God. You can't blame your wife. You can't blame your circumstances. You can't blame the devil. If you fall into temptation, he's saying the problem's in here. One time I had this big wad of blue stick matches. I, this is years back when I was about 10 years old. We went up to Canada go fishing with my dad. We're in this cabin. He's talking about the combustible materials in us. Well, I stuck them in my back pocket, smart me. Don't ask me why. I sat on a stove. 
and the stove was on. I didn't know it. Well, next thing you know, I'm going to tell you what, I had a hot seat because those matches all lit, buddy. The stove is what kind of ignited all that, but the problem was me, wasn't it? The problem was in me and ignorant me putting matches in my back pocket like that, right? I did, I've never done that again, if you want to know. <laughs> 42 years ago, I've never done it again. But I was to blame, right? It's just like us. Look what it says in verse 14. His own lust. So that tells us something. Not other people's lust, not a common lust. That Each one of us has desires that are peculiar to us. So what may tempt you because of your background, it may not be a temptation to me at all. So we have all have certain inclinations that make certain temptations stronger for us than for somebody else. Sleep until noon, drinking a fifth of scotch or gambling on sports, for me, that's not a temptation. There's a lot of people I know, especially to sleep until noon, that's a huge temptation. Or the gambling on sports or drinking a fifth of scotch. There's people, that's a huge temptation. Even if they got saved, that would be more of a temptation for them than it would be for me. Everybody has their own lust is what we need to see. And you all know what I'm talking about. Amen. So some people, they blow up quicker than others. Other people are like super laid back, but they're super lazy. Or just, you know, everybody's got their own individual problem. But the point is, the source of temptation is us. We see that? It's within us. It's the old pogo cartoon. We've met the enemy, and the enemy is us, so to speak, right? Here's the deal. Galatians 5 tells us what? That we are locked in a battle, aren't we? We are locked in a battle, and the battle takes place between our flesh and the spirit. And if you would turn back to Galatians chapter 5, we'll look at that. Beginning in verse 16, Galatians 5, 16, and it says this. Paul writes, this I say then, walk in the spirit and you shall not fulfill the lust. There's that word of the flesh. Verse 17, for the flesh lust against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. These are the contrary one to another so that you cannot do the things that you would. Say so you can't do what you want to do. Because, verse 18, if you are led of the Spirit, you're not under the law. Now, the works of the flesh are manifest, which are these, adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lasciviousness, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, variance, emulations, wrath, strife, seditions, heresies, envies, murders, drunkenness, revelings, and such like. And he says, of the which I tell you before, as I have also told you in time past, if you do those things, if you give in to those sins, that's what you practice. They which do practice such things shall not inherit the kingdom of God. But, verse 22, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance. And there's no law against that, he says. Against such there is no law. That's not going to keep you out of the kingdom manifesting the fruit of the Spirit. Look what he says, though, in verse 24. And they that are Christ have crucified the flesh with the affections and lust. So when we don't crucify our flesh with its affections and lust, we have a problem. So that word for affections means uncontrolled evil emotions, passions. People that just tend to just blow up when something happens. He says, you don't crucify that. You got a problem. Or lust. What you set your heart upon. The strong desires. What he's telling us there, our flesh is never going to mature, is it? What do we have to do? Try to baby it along, hope it grows up. Your flesh will never do that. We have to do what? We've got to crucify it. Because if we don't, then James is saying there's a cycle to temptation. Uncrucified flesh is going to lead to temptation. And so if you go back to James, well, look here. He's going to tell us the second thing we want to look at is, is how temptation works. It always begins with an attraction or a strong desire or a lust. Look at verse 14. He says, but every man is tempted when he's drawn away of his own lust and enticed. That is where the battle is won or lost. Temptation can present itself, and your flesh may involuntarily or instinctively, you just got a longing or wanted to react 
for a certain object or to act a certain way. And if it's not crucified then on the spot, then the process begins. Because what he's saying here is your uncrucified lust or desire, it will do what? It will drag you away and it will entice you into sin. That's what will happen if it's not crucified. So entice, we know, we've heard this before in years past. It's the fishing term. It literally means to lure by use of a bait. So you've got that juicy worm is dangling right in front of that fish, and he's just got this strong desire for that worm, and so it causes him to bite the worm. But guess what happens? This is what all temptation's about, isn't it? It's to deceive us, isn't it? All temptation is designed to deceive us, and that's what happens to that fish. He's deceived. He's caught. And so guess what? Instead of enjoying the worm, he's hooked. Isn't that the way it works? That temptation, that lust that's being presented to you, think, man, I'll just get that, I get hold of that, it'll be great. And you get hold of it, and it's like, it wasn't as great as I thought it would be. Or you got all kinds of problems because of that. Enticed and drawn away. The drawn away is a hunting term. That is like you set a bait, and there's an attraction there that it draws that hungry animal out to that bait, out of its lair, attracted like a magnet to that bait. He's saying, you don't crucify your lust. And that temptation, because you're going to be lured and dragged and baited into committing sin. That is a graphic picture. We said James uses a lot of illustrations from nature to make his point. and does a good job of it. It's a graphic picture of what temptation is. So when you have that desire, that strong desire is present, and the right circumstances present themselves for a person, it's not walking with the Lord, not crucifying their flesh. That attraction becomes irresistible. And all the sinner or the saint that's not living right can see is what he wants. And that temptation does what? It blinds you to the consequences. You can't see the consequences. We're back to the garden again. So Eve, when Satan presented the tree in all its beauty, that is all she could see, wasn't it? That's all she could see. And I heard a guy say this. I thought this was really good. Was that the most important thing about that tree? Its beauty and the fruit and all she's seeing and lusting after and desiring. Is that the most important thing about that tree? And this is what we need to listen up to. The most important thing about that tree for Eve is what God said about that tree. And what did he say about that tree? Don't touch it. Don't eat from it. You will die. That was the most important thing about that tree, wasn't it? But what happens, like I said, is temptation blinds you to what God says. You get overwhelmed and attracted and enticed, and it just consumes you. Isn't that what happens? Am I the only one that happens to? Am I the only one that's ever sinned? I guess I'm sorry. I'll talk to myself here. But look, we also have that when David was on the rooftop in 2 Samuel 11. He looks down there and sees the beauty of Bathsheba. Well, that in and of itself wasn't a sin, was it? It wasn't a sin in and of itself. But he's enticed and he's attracted and he's drawn to her beauty and he's meditating on it and he's thinking about it and he becomes consumed with how delicious she's going to be. He's blinded to God's word because what had God's word said? He asked, who is that woman? Oh, well, they tell her. Oh, that's Uriah's wife. Oh, well, right away, he should have known something. It's like the tree. What was the most important thing about Bathsheba? That she's just an object to be used because he's the king? It's what God said about her. Thou shalt not commit adultery. Thou shalt not covet another man's wife, his car, his house, his money. It's not yours. Wasn't that the most important thing about her? And guess what? David, he should have been out fighting. Instead, he's taking it easy up on the rooftop. He should have been out doing what kings do. He's probably in a backslidden condition, and next thing you know, bam, he's hooked. That's what happened to him. So when the preoccupation with whatever you desire takes over your mind, you will welcome rather than resist the temptation. And then when that happens, James says that desire, it conceives and the will consents to the lustful desire, and conception takes place. Sin is born. Isn't that what it says? Verse 14, And every man is tempted when he's drawn away of his own lust and enticed, and then when lust 
has, conceives, it brings forth. King James says that means gives birth to sin. Well, here, I need to say this, though, so nobody gets all upset unnecessarily. There were some things early on in my life that the temptation was, because of my background and what I come it was very strong. And I'm saying, I had to fight and resist. And as time went on, and you walk with the Lord, it's not the same. You can think just because you constantly are attacking and fighting thoughts in your mind, feelings, emotions, whatever, that doesn't mean you've sinned. It's not until you consent with your will. A thought comes in your mind, that doesn't mean you've sinned, does it? That's a temptation. It's what you do with those thoughts. And a battle's going to take place, and that's where you got to resist the enemy, don't you? But if you don't crucify or control your flesh or your thoughts, then when that temptation unites with your desire, then sin is conceived and born. So how's that work? So someone's texting, happens all the time in my neighborhood, driving in front of you, and they're going 25 miles an hour in a 45-mile-an-hour zone. They're not even doing it in the right lane. They're doing it in the passing lane, and they're blocking everything. Like I said, something involuntarily kind of rises up in you, and I'm saying that's the critical point. You can't control your emotions in that sense, can you? That's not the sin. But the point is you either crucify that desire to say something to stare at them or to drive right on their bumper and or all three things. Either crucify that or you can have a union take place between your flesh and temptation. And when a union takes place, a birth takes place. Sin has birthed itself. So I'm saying that's the critical point. Because what's the final result of all this? Look at the end of verse 15. And sin, when it is finished or becomes full grown, what does it bring forth? Death. So there's a progression here. But here's the point though. Once sin is conceived, there are no stillborn sin babies. In other words, they are birthed and they keep growing. No stillborn sin babies. Begins to grow unless, now it's possible you could repent of whatever, but if you don't repent of it and you continue on, that sin is going to become full grown, it's going to become so big, it dominates you. It conquers you. And so that cute little baby sin didn't seem like much at first becomes a monster that won't let you leave its den. That's about the way it becomes. Because what did the Lord say to Cain? He said this, he said, sin is crouching at your door and it desires to dominate you. But you must rule over it. And here's a problem we have in our society today with young people and older people, and that is internet porn can control and conquer you. You are snared by the web. It's aptly named, isn't it? The web. Sorry, you're tangled in the web and you can't get free. Doesn't that? It happens all the time, and I'm not naive enough to think I don't have anybody specifically in mind. I honestly don't. I know it happens here. It has happened here. But it's not just that. I'm not going to just pick on internet porn stuff. You know, we think it's these big glaring sins. You know, he's a drug addict. He's a heroin addict. You can be addicted to small sins, can't you? So it could be lust. It could be gossip, doubt. It could be pride, worry. Oh, that seems like an innocent sin. He just worries a lot. <laughs> That's a sin, isn't it? Anger, gluttony, resentment, just name your addiction. And that's what happens, though, when we don't crucify that at that initial stage. And it just grows and it just begins to dominate. So I don't want to leave us there. <laughs> He's like, praise God, we got a picnic coming. Don't leave us there. <laughs> so the third and final thing I want to talk about is how could we be set free? You're like, man, please tell me. <laughs> How can temptation be overcome? The first thing is you need to recognize, which is what we've been talking today, what is going on, what the process is. And that's what I think James is saying here. Look what he says in verse 16. In King James, it says, do not err, my beloved brother. And he's saying, you know, don't be deceived. That's what he's saying there. James, a pastor, he's concerned that we're thinking right, that these people, the saints, are thinking right. I mean, the way he writes it, he's saying, don't be deceived. He doesn't say, you idiots. You know, 
haven't you figured it all out yet? No, what does he say? My beloved brethren. He's got a concern for their spiritual safety. And what's he been doing? He's saying, he's pleading with them, look, don't blame God. Don't blame God for your sin and the temptation. He said, let me show you, it's you. But I also think he's saying in doing what he's done here, he's laid out the steps. He's in a sense showing us in slow motion what's happening. Because a lot of times, don't you kind of get into all of a sudden you've given in to temptation. You're like, man, I don't even know what happened. He just kind of was overrun. That whole situation happened so fast and I reacted. I don't even know what happened. And he's done everything. He's slowed it all down here frame by frame so we can see clearly how temptation and sin operate. Isn't that the way it works? You know, you got a close play in professional sports, and it happens so fast, you just really can't, man, I think I saw it. I'm not sure. I don't know if that referee got it right or not. And they'll show the replay, and they'll slow it down to you're seeing every little tiny thing that's going on there. And then you see what happened when they do that and see where the problem is. And that's what James is doing here. He's laying out step by step what happens with every, every temptation to sin. And I'm saying we need to make this more than a sermon. We need to study what he's saying here and learn our lesson. You know, one of the main things I think we need to learn is, is the problem is in us. It's within us. And the second thing I think that we can do to overcome temptation is, we talked about this already, is we need to recognize the absolute goodness of God. And that's what we have here in verse 17. Look what it says. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above and comes down from the Father of lights with whom is no variableness, neither shadow of turning. James is like also saying, I think he's going the other direction too. He's like, don't be deceived. God has, as I said earlier, no evil intentions or plans. He is only good. And all of his gifts are good, aren't they? We quoted this last week. I believe it's Psalm 84. No good thing will he withhold. No good thing. That is God. From them that walk uprightly. I was talking to Lisa about this earlier in the week. She read or heard something. The world looks at the Ten Commandments and what do they say? Bondage. God's withholding good for me. Well, let me ask you this, looking at a couple of them. Does anybody look at a screaming, disrespectful kid and say, that's good. Oh, I like hearing that. <laughs> I like hearing that. It's bondage. I look at that. It's bondage for kids to honor their parents. Does anybody think about that? No, I, don't, I never think that. But that's what the world would say. Let them on their own. Talk to them. Talk to a three-year-old like they're an adult. Don't spank them. You're smarter than God. Is that the way it is? Or does anyone find, I had this happen to me, you ever find your car broken into and your GPS, your purse, and your CDs are all stolen? And do you ever say to yourself, we need more of this? Because it's bondage not to be able to steal. Not when you're on the receiving end, you think, no, that's a good law. And isn't that what the Bible says about the Ten Commandments? But breaking those in fact or in spirit, that's what sin is. That's how we know what sin is. I mean, nobody's thrilled to find out somebody's run off with their wife. Oh, that's great. Free love. <laughs> and things are changing, though. There's some people think that. But, you know, really, I mean, God's law is good. I'm saying we need to trust in the goodness of his laws, even in his restrictions. So we need to see that this is what this verse is telling us. Verse 17 is God is 100 percent good. And he only wants good for his children because that is what the devil attacked in the garden, didn't he? Isn't that what he attacked? The goodness of God and his good intentions. And Eve lost sight. You know what she lost sight of? She's looking at this one tree. She lost sight of all the other trees that are beautiful. They might have been just as beautiful as that. I don't know. They're all filled with all kinds of different fruit. I guarantee you there was all kinds of variety on there. And she lost sight of all that, all the overabundance of trees, beautiful and lush fruit. And all she could see is what? The one she couldn't touch. And the devil uses that and says, ah, he's withholding from you. He's not wanting you to be 100% of what you could be, Eve. And what she didn't see was God had actually put that tree there for her good. She just couldn't see it because what was he doing? The same thing he does with us with our trials. He was just trying to test her and develop her character. 
The tree was for her good. It was a trial for her good. So Nathan confronts David after his sin with Bathsheba. And he said to David, you are the man. And this is what else he said. And he said, and thus saith the Lord God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel. I delivered you out of the hand of Saul. And God says, I gave you thy master's house and thy master's wives into thy bosom. I gave thee the house of Israel and Judah. And if that had been too little, I would moreover have given unto thee such and such things. So it was like Eve with all the trees. David had anything he wanted. God said, I've given you anything you want. There's only one thing you can't have. Your neighbor's wife. You can't have that. And God would say to David, why did you grab her? I'd have given you anything. It would have given you a legitimate wife, anything you wanted. Why did you do that? And that's what he says to us. So he only desires our good, even in his restrictions. So here's what we're saying is we have to trust his goodness and obey him. And in doing that, trusting his goodness and even his restrictions, that's one of our greatest safeguards against sin and temptation. Because as the song goes, God is good how often? All the time. And that's what it says. Look what it says in the end of verse 17. It says, comes down from the father of lights with whom is no variableness, neither shadow of turning. He never changes. He's the father of lights. He created the sun, the moons, and the stars. And the reason he's doing this and comparing God to that is the sun, the moon, and the stars, they change. They shine and then they hide their light. They give us light and then sometimes they give us shadows. They dim. But his light and his goodness, he's saying, there's no variableness in it. It is always the same. His goodness, it never dims, it never hides, it never moves away. It is always there. Always there. He's always good. That song's got it right. And how's that old hymn go? Come thou fount of every blessing. Tune my heart to sing thy grace. Streams of mercy never ceasing. Call for songs of loudest praise. The streams of mercy are always flowing. They are never stopping. The goodness of God never ceases, ever, even in chastisement. That's his goodness. Amen? Malachi 3.6, we know that. He says, I am the Lord. I change not. We need that. We need that stability, don't we? Yeah. Because, you know, the gods of the pagans, I had to read all this Greek mythology. They're as fruity as people are. Always changing, peevish, committing adultery. They tempt each other. They're trying to tempt the humans on earth. You know why? Because those are gods that were created out of these people's imaginations. And they're like, they're just bigger versions of us. Because that's what we're like. But he's saying here, God is not like that at all. Yeah, amen. That's right. He's never that way. He's not like us. The third and final way temptation can be overcome. And this is what we have here in verse 18 is that God's goodness is seen in the transforming power of the new birth. Look what it says in verse 18. Of his own will begat he us with the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creations. He's saying, look, don't be deceived, brethren. God is not only not the source of temptation, but he's chosen you to give you birth with his word. Just the opposite of that. That's the greatest gift that God could have given us is the new birth. And Satan will try to discourage us in that and get us to quit. Say, well, that's not true. You really must not be born again. Look what you just did. That's what he tries to do. What's this key we're saying here at the end with verse 18? We have to remember who we are. What does he say we are there at the end of verse 18? Look what it says, that we should be a kind of first fruits. First fruits. What were the first fruits? They were the best of the crops. They were brought to God to be his sole possession. And so our attitude ought to be, I'm making everything of my life the finest for the Lord. I am the first fruits of his creation. That's the way we need to look at our life and our days as we go through it. Despite what we're going through, we need to remember, I am the first fruits of his creation. Amen. That's right. And believe it. Because Joseph did that. 
I'm saying despite what you're going through, Joseph remembered who he was and who God was despite he's over there in Egypt taken away from his family, despite his loneliness, despite the temptation of Potiphar's wife, despite all of that, she comes to tempt him. He's like, no, 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 I'm not some slave, some boy that you can just do whatever you want to with. That's what he said. He tells her when she tries to tempt him, how then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? Now listen to this story about Augustine. Augustine, the Catholic claim him and the Protestants claim him. But he's a great saint, and he got brought out of some deep wickedness and truly was a converted person, had a lot of good things to say. Now, he lived with the prostitute before he was converted. And after he was saved, he's walking down the street, and his prostitute sees him, and she calls out his name, but he just keeps walking. Now, he saw her, but he just kept his eyes down and kept on walking. And she continues to cry after him, and she finally runs up to him, and she says, Augustine, it is I. And his reply was, I know, but it is no longer I. Amen. Right. I'm not who I was is what he's telling her. There's been a change that takes place. And that's what we need to do with sin. Sin wants to run up, tap you on the shoulder. It's I. Don't you want to embrace me? Oh, no, no, no. It's no longer I. <laughs> that liveth, but Christ that liveth in me. So Joseph, Augustine, and us, we need to remember who we are and consider our lives to be a first fruit offering to God. That's the third clue to overcoming temptation. To get them all down, one, two, three. So we started off saying the one who overcomes and endures his or her trials, that is the one that is going to receive the crown of life. And the endurance through trials is how we're going to prove our love for the Lord. And so I'm just going to leave you with this question. Is that important to you? Is that important to you? We'll end with this. Blessed is the man that perseveres under trial. For once he has been approved, he shall receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to them that love him. Amen. Father, as we pray at the beginning, Lord, I ask that you'll not let us forget this word, that it not just be another time when we've heard another sermon, but it doesn't affect our lives. And I ask that you'll make us apply it to our own lives, Lord, and we can be doers of the word that we've heard and not just hearers only. I just ask that you'll do that for us, Lord, and in doing that, that we'll be prepared, prepared to meet you when you come back. And I thank you that you'll do that for all of us here in Jesus' name. Amen.